Welcome to Felony Miami, where we have real conversations with real people about the criminal justice system in the United States. There's blood in the mud, cocaine in the evidence room, and millions of pages of arrest reports. To say that there's been a lot of crime committed in Miami is the understatement of the century. When it comes to solving crimes and closing cases, our three guests today are experts in the field. Real life Miami Vice investigators. Surveillance, interrogation, pursuit, physical evidence, testimony. From fraud to drugs to murder, South Florida is a criminal's paradise. We don't quite know why, but it probably has something to do with the hot sun, the sexy people, fast cars, million dollar homes, oh, and fresh Colombian marching powder. The desperate and the innocent can get swept up along with hardened criminals in this fast-paced subtropical city. Sometimes it's not easy to tell the good guys from the bad guys. And when there is injustice for one, there is injustice for all. Welcome to Felony Miami. Let's air it out. Hello and welcome back to Felony Miami. I'm your host, Joe Stone. And in today's program, we have three guests, three heavy hitters. To my right, we have Ramesh Nyberg. Ramesh is a 27-year police veteran, having spent 22 years as a homicide investigator with the Miami-Dade Public Police Department. And he holds the uh, high, high standard that he keeps for his law enforcement. He holds himself to that same standard in his work today with his private clients. He works with wrongful death lawsuits, criminal defense, family court matters, non-compete, insurance fraud, background checks, and uh, his, his NSI dossier is packed with powerful skills. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for being here. And directly across from me today, we have Steven Lopez. Steven is a Cuban-born immigrant who came to this country at the age of seven and was raised in Miami. Steven is also a former police detective and a former patrol officer, and he has investigated many criminal cases, including homicides, robberies, sexual batteries. Steven is a former prosecutor for the Miami-Dade County uh, prosecutor's office. This is an amazing career for a young man. The largest prosecutor's office in the state of Florida and the fourth largest in the nation. Stephen has also served and continues to serve as a special assistant public defender, handling a variety of serious juvenile and adult cases, including uh, career criminal and murder cases, both in Miami-Dade and Broward counties. And Stephen has a saying that, uh, quote, I can't stand by and watch injustice. We agree with you on that. Well, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And to my left, Roger Martinez. Roger is the founder and CEO of Global Investigative Solutions, Inc. in Miami, Florida. GIS, Inc. is a full-service private investigation firm helping law firms and third-party administrators, insurance companies, self-insured, and the general public. 
Roger has conducted insurance-related investigations throughout the United States and Puerto Rico. And prior to becoming a private investigator, Roger was a member of the most prestigious branch of the armed forces, the United States Marine Corps. As a sergeant and squad leader in the Marine Corps, Roger was in charge of a 12-man team and conducted amphibious missions in the Mediterranean Sea and the Black Sea. Thank you for your service. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. So you guys have all seen some, uh, some heavy stuff, some heavy action. You guys have been in the shit. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I'm going to throw this out there. Whoever wants to pick it up first, what's the most heinous crime you've been involved in investigating? Well, it's hard to choose. Um, there was a lot, but um, I recall um, a triple murder that we handled up in Palm Springs North. They used to call it Palm Springs North, um, where two elderly people were beaten to death with a hammer. Um, and then the, um, their son uh, was, was shot to death in front of his son. Uh, so anyway, it was, it was a real chaotic uh, type of a case, but we got it closed. Yeah. How do you... How do you uh how do you come across those things and then deal with them? They stick with you. They stick with you. Um, you know, it's you, you've. I guess you're so focused on doing a good job at the time, and you're you know you're trying to make sure everything is done properly and done well that you don't really have time to to dwell on the, the horror aspect of it. Um, but I just came in touch with with uh, the young man that got wounded and survived in that case. Uh, many many years. This was a nineteen. Uh, 1987 case, and uh, he contacted me last year, and he's doing very well. Amazing. Saw his dad killed right in front of him, but uh, he's turned out to be a, a good kid. That is horrifying. And they, they caught the uh, murderer? Yes. And were, what's, what was his story? He's serving life. Yeah? Yeah. How long did that case take you to get from, uh, from, from the incident to a conviction? Uh, well, I th from the incident to conviction took about a year and a half uh, no, not even that long because he, he ended up actually pleading. He yeah. was facing the electric chair, which we used to have the electric chair, but um, he took a plea, uh, pled, to, uh, pled to three consecutive life terms uh, to avoid the electric chair. So we actually wrapped it up within months. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's horrifying. Steve? Uh, the most bizarre case, the most uh, heinous case I ever saw was a murder where they charged the body that, that I investigated. They were, they killed the person and they charged the body. Uh, it turned out that um, um, they, they burned him alive, you know, because they can determine based on the, the, you know, the smoke in the lungs, whether the person was breathing at the time. Um, it was an elderly man and, you know, 82 years old, and uh, he was on dialysis. So it just, it just, it was the type of, senseless homicide that that you just that just sticks with you um and then you think about your own family and that's you know i mean you got to separate your own emotions from those from those uh moments but um it just you know it just gives you pause and to think that there are people amongst us that that live and breathe the same air that we do that are capable of doing that to someone um you know it's not like the typical homicide case where two guys get involved in a fight or a triangle, lover's triangle, where one pulls out a gun and shoots the guy in a moment without thinking. This is a premeditated, you know, heinous crime against someone who's probably the most vulnerable of all victims, other than a child. You know, it's uh, that you know person on dialysis. I mean, not, not that he was living a great life to begin with, 
and that's and that's how they might have been his great life. Yeah, you know, yeah. Who, who are we to judge? Exactly. That one stuck with you. Did they? They caught the the. The person was apprehended, but the person had committed other murders, so he never really paid for that murder. He was apprehended in another county for a triple homicide that he committed in that county. So, a lot of times when you have multiple murders, you know people people get uh, caught in a jurisdiction, and that's the jurisdiction that usually leads mm-hmm. in the prosecution. So you didn't have anything to do, or did they just add that case on? How does that work? They usually add the case, and they did add the case. Um, the case was not resolved when I left law enforcement mm-hmm. back in 2006, but um, you know he was already facing the death penalty on on the other counties' cases. Right, and why, where where is that person today? Um, I believe he's on death row. What is the status of Florida with capital punishment right now? You said we used to have the electric chair. Did they change that to lethal injection? Or yes, it's lethal did? injection now. They, they considered the death penalty by electric chair. I guess it was too cruel. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that changed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's always litigation. That's a very, the, the, probably the heaviest litigated area of criminal law is, you know, there's always people trying to change the either the sentencing scheme as it applies to the death penalty. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of changes over the last 20-something years, 30 years of the death penalties. Juveniles were, in 1989, Stanford v. Kentucky, they sentenced a juvenile to death in 2006 in the case Roper v. Simmons that eliminated uh, juveniles from being, um, you know, offered the death penalty. Mm -hmm. They can no longer be executed. Right. And then you have, you know, the, the mentally ill cannot be executed. At one point, that was also happening. And then s- certain states have different methods of execution. Right. So, You would think that the people committing these crimes must be mentally ill, though. I mean, that's, you know, it doesn't seem like a... I, I think that the, there are people that are just bad people that do bad things because they like to victimize others. And we hate to think that there are people like that, but yeah. I've sat in the interview w- room with them for hours. And there are people that like to take advantage of others and like to victimize others. They get pleasure from it. Yeah. Um, whether they're mentally ill or not, I'm not a psychiatrist, but yeah. you know, the, they, their motives are, are, are different. And they can sit there and talk to you about normal things, and they, and they will seem sane. And then they do some crazy horrible stuff like that to you Roger well <clears throat> the most heinous insurance case that I've seen or done work, worked on would, uh, would have to be you know the workers comp cases workers comp cases are, the reason why I say workers comp is because workers comp usually are the, the cases that last the longest a uh, person can be on workers comp for 10-15 years and um, usually when a person's on workers comp you know they are they're milking the system so they are collecting money for 10 to 15 years. So these people, uh, we collect enough evidence to show that, yeah, they are okay. They're not hurt. You know, they're, they're going about going to work you know, when they're not, they're not supposed to work, be working. And um, these cases, eventually they get crossed over to the criminal investigators, uh, Miami-Dade County or whatever county you're, being, you're working on. And those eventually go turned on. They, they get to... Uh, criminal investigations and you know they get turned on to the criminal investigators they they uh 
they go on to uh, their their locations. They do their stuff, and we move on to other cases. Right. As far as uh, what goes on, uh, what what if they serve time with that, we don't know because uh, they they uh, they move on with their investigations, and uh, the insurance investigators move on with other cases. Right. So, but like on on these work comp cases or these insurance fraud cases, what what's like some of the most ridiculous fraud that you've seen basically, being perpetrated? On, uh, basically, on you know, in workers' comp, you're, you're on workers' comp because you got hurt at work. Right. And uh, you're sitting at home, supposed to be sitting at home collecting money. And uh, what these people usually do is they usually end up working somewhere else. You know, it's, it's uh, at, uh, dead-end jobs or uh, under the table. You know, they, they, they can't be paid over the table because they can see, you know, a paper trail. Right. So a lot of these people are working, you know, under the table for somebody else or, you know, and, and un- they trying to stay under the radar. Right, right. And then, like, insurance fraud, that would be if somebody's claiming, oh, I, I got hit by a car and I hurt my neck and, I, and I'm going to go to these, uh, one of these clinics. Exactly. How does that work? What is that all about? Because I know there is a thing that, that's been happening in the state of Florida with fraud I think we're like number one. Yeah, yeah the, we're yeah, number one. Exactly. Florida <laughs> is the uh, capital. It is. is the the fraud clap capital of the country. Yeah. Wow. Is that because it's so transient here, or just because we we I, attract I don't know. the smartest and the best? <laughs> I wish I had the answer. I, I don't know why, but it's just everybody comes here. They want. They they think that they can retire and and live off the system. What's the craziest fraud scheme you guys have ever seen? Uh, clinics. Uh, there's there's one scheme right now uh, where these guys are setting up accidents. You know, uh, they'll come up to a family and say, "Hey, okay, uh, meet me at this corner here at this time," and the guy will meet. You know, the the couple will meet the uh, the guy who's going to do it at this corner. They get out the car. The guy gets in the car. He crashes the car for them. Gets out the car. Puts them back in there, and then they call the cops. Oh man! And these are and these are frauds that. Involve lawyers. I mean, exactly. Yeah, right. lawyers, uh, doctors. Yeah, everybody's yes. in on the fix. And Florida, I think one, we were t- trying to talk about um, why is that's one area of fraud in Florida that's very rampant. I mean, I've defended people accused of that in federal court. Um, the P- the Florida PIP laws are set up in a certain way. PIP, PIP, is, PIP is personal injury protection. Correct. And Florida is also called a no-fault state. Correct. And So that's probably one of the things that helps pr- propagate this whole fraud because what, what, to my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, the no-fault means it doesn't matter whose fault it was. You can claim it to your insurance. Absolutely. Okay, go on. And so, you know, that's just that's just one area of the law that's, that's, that, that's you know, where fraud is perpetrated a lot in Florida because of like you said, the no fault. Um, you know, we do have a hundred thousand lawyers in Florida, and so Damn. you know, um, personal injury is 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 a very, very profitable industry. Mm-hmm. Um, insurance companies are very wealthy; they have a lot of money, and you know, I mean, and, and that's not to say I'm not bringing discredit on the on the on the personal injury attorneys. Ninety nine percent of them are are honorable. Um, Injury, uh, personal injury attorneys who actually receive the clients that come into their offices based on marketing. Um, but, you know, you have those that are involved in the illicit solicitation of the clients that come in and, and you know, and then there's the, the unwitting lawyer that has P 
people making these false claims on the outside that they have no clue, and then they come into their office. So in their in their from their perspective, they're they're dealing with a legitimate accident victim who's claiming an injury. Right. But they don't know that the accident was staged from the get go uh, by people who are profiting. Um, you know, and they have clinics and doctors right. and chiropractors that are making uh, payments under the table. And now, that, I, I remember a lawyer explaining once, and I don't know if you're if you guys are familiar with this. That the whole system for that fraud in this state is that with auto insurance, if you make just a basic claim that there's a certain amount of money that you're going to get regardless, and that the lawyer is going to get X amount, the doctor is going to get X amount, and the people are going to get X amount. Correct. Yeah, yeah. There's a set amount like uh, I think it's like ten thousand dollars. Right. A set amounts that they they got they break that up. Right. So they're, um, the lawyer's like, I'll take three, the doctor will take mm-hmm. two, and you guys will get five. Come on in with your accident. Right. right. And exactly. of course, there's some there's some insurance uh, providers, and then some like in, for example, I, I imagine like a truck like UPS, they don't have the small um, limits. They may have a, an umbrella because they have a fleet of vehicles. And they're in the commercial context, so they may have a larger uh, pot mm-hmm. to pick from, you know. So it could be a legitimate accident, but perhaps the person wasn't really as injured. And then, if anyone that's unscrupulous anywhere in that in that system involved in that case can can get more um, from that insurance carrier. Mm-hmm. While you were mentioning, <clears throat> you were mentioning Florida being number one in fraud. I think it's probably worth mentioning. It's a little bit of a different aspect, but there's every kind of fraudster we can imagine here. And some of some of your listeners and some of us might have gotten calls from people claiming to be the IRS, people claiming to be police departments, and people should know that the IRS does not call you. Right. Police departments do not call you and tell you that there's some sort of. I heard a civil warrant, which I started laughing you know, <laughs> when I heard that. But, but I think one of the problems or, 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 or one of, the, one of the, 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 the victimology of South Florida, we have a lot of elderly people that have come here to retire. We also have a lot of people from other countries. And so mm-hmm. all we can tell these people is get educated about the way things work. Get educated about how your government works and you won't fall prey to that stuff. Yeah, that's true. Right. Now, I remember I, several years ago I got one of those phone calls that the IRS had uh, filed a lawsuit against me. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, it just so happens I was pretty sure that the law, that the IRS doesn't file lawsuits against people, but nonetheless, I honestly, I hung up and I called my accountant. I was like, "Hey, what's up with this?" And he's like, "Dude, the IRS doesn't file lawsuits. Right. It's it's a scam." Mm-hmm. But you know what? Clearly, people get drawn into these things. This other one with the the criminal, like the you, you know, civil suit has been filed against you. And then the the crazy thing is, they ask you to pay these um, debts like with gift cards. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. should be like a tip-off right away. It, it should be. But, and the fact that they're doing it in such high volume means it's working for them. They're, right. they're, they're making God knows right. how many calls they're making right. with yeah. it, some, from some little mm-hmm. you know, basement somewhere. Yeah. But they're getting people to, yes. to bite. Yeah. And people, yeah. it, as long as, look, and, and, and the victimology of South Florida and, and pretty much you know, um, in American culture is, in America, we always want to invest our money and invest our money and we want that money to grow and and you know it's a capitalist society so what really these people take advantage of is also in some cases and and this is the victim's fault okay 
is their is their greed. Their greed, yeah. Sure. Uh, their desire to look. The truth of the matter is, as you know, because of the mortgage crisis that hit, you know, um, banks don't give you the 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 type of return on your interest that they once did. Mm-hmm. I know. I remember a time there was a time where you got five percent if you had, you know, an account. Um, like a CD, like a CD account, yeah. or what mm-hmm. have you, with the bank, but now they don't. So people always find a way to lure someone mm-hmm. with the promise of a, a return. And people should get educated, uh, like Detective Nyberg says. And if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Mm-hmm. Okay, usually, you, yeah. you know, you can get you can get two for one at Burger King with a coupon. And maybe an extra set of fries, but that's about it. You're not gonna get, you know, you're not gonna get Burger King meals for the rest of your lifetime unless you enter a sweepstake that's at Burger King and you put the, you know, the ballot in. So you guys have all been out there dealing with criminal types. I'm curious, has anybody ever tried to bribe you? Yeah, you're shaking. Yeah, as a detective and as a cop. you know, the only thing that once or twice people did was, you know, just try to get me not to take them to jail. I've never had a, an official, as a cop, I never had an official bribe. I mean, threats that if I don't let them go, they're going to beat me up or whatever. But which is, you know, it's a crime in and of itself, depending on, on how it's, you know, addressed. It's called corruption by threat. But for the most part, no one said, hey, take this and I'll... uh you know, uh, I'll I'll do this. Mm-hmm. As an attorney, that's happened once or twice. People, you know, want me to create something or some evidence or, you know, some in, in a civil context. I'm remembering the person wanted me to uh, create stock certificates for their corporation because they had lost them. And I explained to the person that I can, you know, that's that's a crime and that's illegal and that I'm not going to fabricate any evidence for them. But for the most part, I was lucky. Of course, uh, Detective Nyberg did about 18 more years in law enforcement than I did, so he definitely has more stories. Yeah, how, uh, how's your bribery record? It, only two incidents, and they're really small potato-type incidents. Yeah. I mean, and one was when I was a, a patrol officer. I was a rookie patrol officer, and I stopped this guy. He was obviously a well-to-do businessman, and I was about to write him a ticket. And I was writing him a ticket, and, um, and, and he came and stood by my door, and um, after he left, I found this little business card holder on the floor with his business card in it and a $100 bill. So he had dropped that in there, <laughs> you know, hoping I, was, I guess I was going to tear up the ticket. So I put it on a property receipt and impounded it. So <laughs> yeah. he never saw it again. He never got it back because he couldn't go and claim it. Right. And um, so, you know, some, somebody, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened to the $100 bill. <laughs> kind of like a silent drop. <laughs> the other one was uh, kind of a strange situation. You know, in homicide, we handled all kinds of death cases, homicides, suicides, accidentals. And suicides were always problematic because the families, the families didn't want to believe it. The families would often argue against it. it, it was a, it's an embarrassing kind of a stain on the family name and that kind of thing. And this one guy was just, he just didn't want to accept the fact that his son had committed suicide. And, How did uh, he commit suicide? He shot himself. And, um, and he called me and, uh, and said, listen, and he was in tears, this poor guy. I mean, and he said, he said, can you just change it? Can you just change it to an accidental death? I'll pay you $2,500. And I'm going, 
I'm not changing it. You know, I'm really sorry about your son's death, but I, I can't do that. And, and, and we never had this conversation, and goodbye. I hung up on him. Now, could you know. he get in trouble for <laughs> sure, trying to offer sure he that? Could. Sure he could, but, you know, you, you have to pick your battles. And, um, right. and, and this guy was just, just overcome with grief, and I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't going to pursue that. Yeah. Have, you, uh, have you ever been in, in, in court testifying uh, in a case and had to maybe fudge something one way or the other informationally? Like, just to convince the jury, like, you knew it was a bad guy and you had to, like, say, well, yeah, I kind of. I mean, I've had, I've had prosecutors ask me to say things that weren't 100% true. And I've said, you know, look, I'll testify to what I did, what I know. Um, and, if, and if asked, I'll testify what I, to an opinion. But, you know, sometimes there are, there are arguments against that. Uh, Outright lying on the stand? No. no. Yeah. I, I had one case where <clears throat> the instructions were given to me. We, we were to go watch this lady, and the instructions that were given to me were uh, she had a problem with her right hand. Her right hand, um, she couldn't move. The instructions that were given to me was her trigger finger. She couldn't move her trigger finger. She had her hand like a hand, like a gun. And she couldn't move her trigger finger. That was the instruction that was given to our office. So we went out there. We got tons of video on this lady using her hand uh, to grab stuff with her trigger finger and uh, smoking a cigarette with her. You know, so she was using her trigger finger the whole time. So we, the you know, we turned in our case, our evidence, and the client was super happy, ecstatic, great. Oh, we have this lady. We had tons of video. And then uh, when the case went to trial. The uh, the instructions that that were supposed to be given to me was that sh she couldn't move her bottom three fingers. The only finger that she can move is her trigger finger. So the whole investigation was, you know, we were watching the wrong fingers. You were fingering the wrong guy. Exactly. <laughs> so, so basically, we went to court, and the attorney found out what happened, and uh, basically, he told me to try and save this. And uh, I got on stage, and and one of the questions that the uh, opposing attorney was asking me was, did I ever see her move the bottom three fingers? And I, I couldn't recall because um, I'm, we're here focusing on her trigger finger, and I I'm, I'm, didn't recall any time her moving her uh, bottom three fingers. And I said, just to save the case, I just said yes. And um, he just went at me. And that's, you just open up yourself for the attorney to just go at you. And he just laid in me and I, until I finally, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't remember, in other words. I yeah. just basically said, you know, I thought she did at one point in time. Because it was, it was like eight hours of video. It was a lot of video. And I couldn't remember it. And then I just said, I, look, at this point, I can't recall whether she did or not use her bottom three fingers. Uh, my instructions were to keep an eye on her trigger finger, which we did. Right. And uh, that case, uh, they, we lost that case. Yeah. You know, there, there are times no. when, and I, I, I know I've testified incorrectly several times where I've, my, you know, my memory maybe wasn't as good as it should have been. I remember a case where I testified, they asked me who had taken the hand swabs from the victim, all right? And I couldn't remember, so I said it was detective so-and-so or whatever, however I answered. And are you sure? Well, that's my memory. Yeah, I'm sure. Which I put, I, I should have said no. I'm not sure, right. but that was now I had to kind of stick with that, and he turned it into a 
you know, well, Detective Nyberg's lying. And that's, ah, yeah. that's the way he approached the jury with it. And he lied. He even counted the amount of times I said he still. 11 times he lied on the witness stand. And it was a matter of, I was wrong. It was the wrong person. And, you know, really, in the end, what does it matter who took the hand swabs? And, and if I, you know, if, <laughs> if I got it wrong, I got it wrong. But, right. you know, the hand swabs right. were taken. But that's what attorneys will do. Right? Yeah, and, and, and the problem, honestly, and, and look, having been a cop, and a prosecutor dealing with cops as, as either victims or mainly my my star witnesses on most cases, the one thing that I try to do, because with a lot of cops, where they make a mistake, and, and Detective Nyberg just hit that, is that, and by the way, even though he's retired, he'll always be a detective, just like <sighs> when a judge retires, they still call him judge. It's kind of hard to get. Too formal for me, man. You, you know, people get, people get and, and this is witnesses, but, it, it looks worse for for police officers in Miami Dade because um, in Miami Dade um, there's always been friction between the police. You know, there's been riots and there's been things that where there's a distrust of the police in some segments of of the Miami Dade community. And so, what happens though is police officers deal with a lot of cases all the time. And yes, are some police officers fudging on their reports? Because they believe either they're pressured by a prosecutor to remember things mm. because it's stronger for the case or they're pressured by an older officer that's been there a long time and it's a younger officer. And, I, and I've seen that happen all the time. Or like Detective Nyberg just said, sometimes you don't remember you, all these things, you know, years later, you go to trial years later and you don't remember. And the worst thing that, an, that, that a witness could do is try to um, say an answer they're not 100% certain of mm -hmm. because it can be misconstrued and an attorney would... I, I always take my time. I, before I call an officer a liar, I, I've, I've done that one time and one time only, and I didn't call him a liar because I, I still think it's unprofessional to call a witness a liar or you know any, any derogatory terms, but you can establish that somebody's not telling the truth when it's black and white and there's evidence to the contrary. Um, but the worst thing that a witness could do, and, and, and a lot of times it gets misconstrued from online, it's just they're trying to remember, mm -hmm. and they think they remember, but they're wrong. And that's why it's always better if you're not sure to say, I don't recall, or I'm not certain, or it could have been this guy, or it could have been that guy, but I don't recall that. And, and like he said, it wasn't even a relevant or important uh, issue mm -hmm. because the evidence is either, you know, there was evidence collected, and it either showed the defendant was the person who committed the crime based on that piece of evidence, or it wasn't. So there's no reason. A lot of times, cops get jammed up by talking about things that are not even relevant right. or material or won't change the outcome. Then the attorney will take that, and if they say if they can establish that the officer is untruthful, then they start to question whether the investigation is 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 based on truth. Right, you know, or, or if fact. you guys are trying to set stuff up. Because, you know, th this whole state of our criminal justice system today, um, I guess, is stemming from a reactionary time in American history back in the 90s, 80s, 90s, when things were getting a little out of control. And now all of these aggressive measures are coming home to roost. And I guess... 
Detective Nyberg was, you were on the force probably right after that. Uh, you came in a little later. Um, uh, I'm just curious, what were your marching orders and what were you told to do when it came to policing your neighborhoods? And were there any specific recommendations to go after sp- certain groups of people? Well, first of all, when I was a rookie police officer, I was in Opelika. So there was one predominant group of that area. Was a, it was a black community. So, you know, when somebody said, hey, you pulled me over because I'm black, you know, we'd look at them and say, dude, look around. You know, this is, a, this is where I work. Right. Right. So, so no. So we, we, we didn't target anybody in particular. There was so much crime going on. And I started in 19, late 1979 is when I was on the street as a, as a, as a uniform officer. I remember, I remember our sergeant saying, get, get these guns off the street. Um, and I remember him saying, hey, pat them down. If you didn't have a reason to pat them down, pat them down. If they got guns, take them off the street. If we lose it in court, we lose it in court. Let's get the guns off the street. So just take the guns away. Right. But now there's more guns than ever. Uh, well, per capita, I'm, I'm not so sure. You know, yeah. I, I, listen, the, the, 70s, the 70s and 80s were... The, the crime rate was way more violent than it, than it is today. We had, yeah. if you look at the but, violent crime rate, it was much But do you, was, but do you think bigger. that's because the cops went in and took guns off the street, or is it because it went in and took a lot of dark people off the street? I, I, I'm not understanding the question. So, well, it seems that our jails are filled with a lot of uh, disproportionate amount of, of right. people of color. Right. And that is not the makeup of our community. The, the the makeup of our community is it's proportionately white people. Right. So it just seems that there's an imbalance. So I'm curious, was it the guns or was it taking the black people off the street? Well, I can I can only speak for the policing that we did and, and the police departments I worked for. We were never told to target anybody, okay. black, white, Hispanic, or, or otherwise. We we were told to go out and make make the the zone or district or wherever we were assigned to the safest place we could. Right. And to treat people fairly. Did we always treat people fairly? No, we didn't because of individual personalities. You did have guys. You did have guys that were racist. Of course you did, and you still do. And that's because we're human beings, and those are hard to filter out. Yeah. I remember in the 70s and 80s, uh, there was, we had a, a lot of problems, uh, issues with uh, Colombians, with the uh, cocaine cowboys. Oh, yeah. And a lot of killings, a lot of drug, uh, drugs, and a lot of uh, guns in the streets during, the, during, during those times. Yeah. That's a great point. I mean, if somebody was targeted, I would say Colombians coming coming into Miami were targeted for sure. Right. But with good reason. I right. mean, our, our our murder rate was through the roof. Went up huge. Yeah. I mean, I definitely g- think that blacks disproportionately are represented in a prison system. Um, in some cases, in a lot of cases, look, the, the truth of the matter is race plays a factor, um, you know, in people's perceptions. But it also, you know, if I would probably venture to guess that um, the majority, if you look at, and you know, as a court-appointed lawyer in a lot of cases in Dayton Broward, the majority of my clients are black, but they are also poor. That's why they're getting a private lawyer that's court-appointed from a wheel of lawyers to handle those type of cases. But and there's a lot of there's a lot of poor white people too. There is a lot of poor white people, and you're and and that's a valid point that you're making. Um, I, I just know that a lot of my clients live in crime-infested, drug-infested neighborhoods where some of them are in 
for crimes that they actually didn't commit but were with the people who committed the crime. Right. So a part of this was the, this war on drugs. And I guess I guess you were in it, Detective Nyberg, before the whole wave of the war on drugs. seems like you, Officer Lopez, were there rocking it out in, uh, in, the, in the drug war time, right? It, well, I would say subsequent because, uh, you know, I guess Detective Nyberg was uh, in homicide during the real war drug days, which were during the cocaine cowboys in, right. in the early 80s. Uh, I, I remember when, when I lived with my father for a brief period of time because I grew up with my mother. Um, I remember in front of his house, uh, there was these guys. They shot, you know, this guy died in my dad's arms because, you know, it was a drug deal gone bad and they, they were all... Colombian and the guy told my dad don't let me die but this was common during that era you know in the middle of the street they you know kind of like reminiscent of the movie uh, Scarface you know that scene and Detective Nyberg were certainly I, I was I'm a little bit younger than Detective Nyberg but not by a lot but I, I was I was growing up you know and I would see that in the news and what have you but you know the scene you know with Tony Montana and Scarface where they shoot the guy in the middle of Ocean Drive that wasn't far fetched from the truth mm -hmm. that was going on in Miami. So I would I wouldn't say that I was there during the drug. I was there post those cocaine right. as an officer post co cocaine cowboy days. And but were you still being pushed to to enforce that these war on drug policies? I was. I mean, our department. You know, was although it was a community policing department, they really wanted the drugs off the street. You know, and a lot of the young kids were engaged in drug dealing and drug. You know, ecstasy was becoming very do, popular. Do you guys think that there would be less violent crime if the drugs were made legal? Uh, it's a tough question. Um, I, I'm not so sure because people always try and get over no matter what the rules are. So. Um, you know, there's still people that are smuggling in un untaxed uh, uh, alcoholic beverages, you know, from, from place to place. Uh, I'm not saying it's, you know, I'm not saying it's a big industry, but I, I think you're always, you're always going to have a black market for something. Right. And so, you know, I personally believe you should legalize marijuana. I don't think that, I don't think it should be a criminal thing at all. Did you ever let anybody go when they had some weed? Oh, yeah. Many I times. Did. You did? Many times. It wasn't worth arresting them. I mean, it just it just didn't make sense to take myself off the road for four hours, you know, and and take this take this like little bit of weed down to the down to the uh, property room and impound it and go through all that. How about how about blow? Mistake. You ever let people go for, for that, cocaine? I, that that no. was a felony. So you know, that's always been a felony. In New York, it's a misdemeanor to have a little bit of blow. You know, I mean, I don't know if that's something. And what you're referring to is cocaine. Yeah. But you know, officers have discretion when it comes to misdemeanor offenses. You know, if you stop someone who's impaired, you know, and his wife hasn't had anything to drink, and, and she, you can easily cut the guy a break and let the woman drive home. Or if it's a young kid who's about to start the military, you can, you know, pull the car over or, or tow it or, you know, teach him a lesson, you know, take the keys away and call someone home. So you have that kind of discretion. Now when it becomes a felony, you know, the cop could, the officer could be in trouble for, you know, um, and, and and there's always that whole thing where, you know, they can someone can accuse you of tampering with evidence or if the guy comes back and says, hey, he stole my drugs or whatever, you know, something that's not unheard of in, in, in Miami policing, right. you know, in, in South Florida, 
But you definitely don't want to get yourself in a jam over cutting a break to someone who was breaking the law at, at a felony level. Right. You know, and I, I wanted to touch base on what he said uh, and the question you asked Detective Nyberg about: Will legalizing drugs make a difference? In some respects, if you legalize marijuana, I really believe. Well, one thing is, the court system will not be so bogged down with, with you know, petty arrests, petty misdemeanors. Uh, people will will be able to spend a lot less money on attorneys. The legal system will be better off. And and you know the truth of the matter is someone who has f- five joints on them doesn't deserve to be put in the same cell with a rapist, yep. a child molester, a, a killer. You know to potentially be exposed to to physical harm during the four or five hours he's going to do time at the jail. I mean, know? I think I think so many people agree with that. It just seems like a common <clears throat> sense thing. But uh, who's who's fighting against it? Who's the ones out there fighting against that? Well, there's, there's some opposition. I mean, there's some states that are more liberal than others. Florida is a little bit more conservative, although it's, you know, the, the pendulum is changing to more progressive or, I guess, more moderate or, or more liberal towards, towards one end of the spectrum. But, you know, I think, you know, to answer your question candidly, I, I don't think it'll change. Just legalizing drugs itself won't change the dynamics because I honestly believe and I've been to Amsterdam and I've been to where people smoke marijuana down the street but the people there are different people than here For, first of all most of the people in in Amsterdam are Dutch you know so here we have a, a mecca of different cultures people from different countries with different values yeah and we have uh, I think that the real problem with crime stems with you know the values people are taught at home the location where people live that are crime-infested, you know, locations where, where learned behavior by kids that really don't have as much opportunity as a kid that's growing up in Weston or Bonaventure, I think that has a lot more to do with crime and, uh, and you know, and, and, the, and the violent tendencies that we in American culture have as a culture. I mean, you don't see that in other countries besides the fact they're homogeneous societies mostly, you know, and they're educated and the level of education is higher in some of those countries. Like, Well, yeah, that used to be an important thing in this country and seems like somewhere in the 60s or 70s a bunch of politicians got together and said, we need to dumb these people down. They're getting way too smart for their own good. You know, and then there's people like you guys that, you know, rise above that. You go to law school and you you join the military and you open an investigative law firm and, you, you know, you're an officer. I mean, you rise above that. Has there ever been... A case that you were involved in that you thought, wow, this would make a great movie or TV show? Yes, several. Um, and some already have. So, oh, Okay, which ones? Well, I got involved in the, uh, the investigation of the Winter Hill Gang out of Boston with Whitey Bulger, okay. uh, who, who ran probably the biggest crime, crime organization in the Northeast for a long time. Uh, because one of the murders was down here. So our, our department got involved in that. Um, there have been a couple movies and several books already written about that. Yeah. Um, it was an interesting, very interesting case. Um, it was really a Boston-based case that yeah. just happened to have a, a, a segment down here. Um, and then a couple others um, uh, that that were just unusual and, and um, weren't 
necessarily street level. They were they were more like they were more like intelligent people that were scheming, and, and ended up getting in a murder case. So, so it it would lend itself to the screen, I guess. Yeah. Can you tell tell us? Uh, about there that? was there was a there was a case of a British businessman who who got murdered down here. He was he was investing a lot of money in in a in a business that he thought was legit, but it was just a, it was a massive fraud. It was. Um, you know, they they had it. They had it, it. Literally had a warehouse full of empty boxes that they showed him. Oh wow! And and you know, they 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 went to great lengths to perpetuate fraud on a lot of different investors. This guy invested a lot of money, and uh, when he started to realize that something wasn't right, uh, and ordered an audit, um, they decided to knock him off, and um, they 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 uh, they lured him to the office under the pretense that he was going to meet someone who's going to buy him out. Um, he got bought out, all right. He got, he got a bullet in the back of the head. Damn. And, and they buried his body just west of our police department, actually, uh, when it used to be all swamp out there in Doral. And uh, really fascinating case. And, and um, uh, we didn't have a body for, for about two years until we, got, uh, until we got one of those guys in and got him, got him to confess, and he took us to the body. You got him to confess? Yeah. How? Skill. Torture? Absolute skill. One of the best in- investigators I Waterboarding? ever. Waterboarding. Didn't do that stuff. <laughs> no. No. Just, just good old fashioned stuff talking. that holds up in court. Talking, confidence game. I mean, you you have to know how to talk to people. You have to, and, and the investigator just passed away a couple couple uh, few months ago. Greg Smith. Um, Greg was a uh, just an amazingly good interviewer, and he got people to confess a lot. Because he was just very good at it, and and spent twelve hours in the interview room with this guy, and he gave up the location. Yep. And then who Took went us out to there? the body? You guys went out there to dig it up, or literally drained a swamp out there. Really? Yeah. That's intense. You got any movie uh, experience uh, cases well, under your belt, there, Stephen? I've, I've had a lot of cases that make the news, and uh, I mean, I, the only case that that I have that I think is worthy of a movie. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it it got a lot of coverage down here. From my understanding, it got more coverage. The only other case that got more coverage was the, um, there was a great story writ- written in the Herald about it and, uh, you know, came out in a lot of news. Was it, It's a civil rights case. I do some police misconduct cases, and it involved the city of Miami Gardens and their former chief and um, racial profiling and stuff. So it was a case that we filed back in 2013, and it was settled. But the stories of the plaintiffs in that case, the officers involved, the supervisors, the you know the whole thing with the city of Miami Gardens is 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 noteworthy for for a movie because there's a lot of storylines within the. Um, so the 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 head of the police department in Miami Gardens was perf- purposely racially profiling. Well, people in, in their area. Well, the the, the whole the, the police department uh, had a policy practice of of stopping black males between the ages of fifteen and thirty for for the same reasons that um, you know we were discussing earlier that you know they had they, there's a lot of crime in Miami Gardens um, you know there's a lot of guns and drugs and stuff but at at some point they kind of lost sight of the real crime. And they just started enforcing petty crimes such as mm. people drinking a natural light at the park playing dominoes or, you know, just they were just uh, harassing citizens, 
you know, and, uh, you know, there's a new chief, you know, after they cleaned house in that case and the case was settled, uh, you know, the department has had less problems. They still have some problems, and, you know, I work with other lawyers, and some, we have some cases still pending that I can't really talk about. But for the most part, you know, their their practice of just stopping black males that fit this age, whether they have probable cause or not, right. kind of, you know, has stopped in right. the volume that it was you know, and so that is a real thing. It's not people's imaginations or just you know sensitive people saying, "Oh, you're picking on us." It's actually a real thing. It is a real thing, and and, and you know, the irony is that that department was spearheaded by African American uh, people. So, you know, I mean, it's a, the department's a mixture of African Americans, white, and Hispanics, and you know, and the and African Americans are not overly represented in the law enforcement community. Um, and but the leader, the leadership in that department in that city was African American. So, you know, they were allowing this to happen. Yeah. You know, and as far as I, I'm concerned, they were just, you know, as liable as you know the non-African American officers who didn't stop that. You know, yeah. and so, but that's like the one case that has always and will always stick out for me because that was something that's that you see in the movies, there's something in from Hollywood. You know, I mean, a lot of my criminal cases, you know, some of them have been covered on the news, but for the for the most part, you know, Detective Nyberg probably had the, the you know that kind of case that Detective Nyberg is talking about is the one that maintains coverage. This is so often, unfortunately, we live in in South Florida. We have a, a society that where crime is so rampant that that's front you know that's that's the first 10 minutes of any every news channel so while my guy may have come out today and tomorrow the media will move on to the bigger and better and better uh case 24, and, the 24-hour news cycle it's and hor- I can't, and horrible I can't, yeah and i can't i can't honestly tell you that some that my case is you know you could talk to any lawyer in that same courtroom and their client you know they could write a story about their client of course how about yeah. you Roger? As insurance investigators, or like how about in your military career? Um, well, oh, that's another that's another <laughs> chapter here. Yeah. Uh, the worst thing I've seen in the military. Uh, okay. Well, seen some. Um, oh, you taking me back now? Uh, so helicopters exploding, bodies going everywhere, and uh, us having to go and dig these things out of the swamp, and weeks later running through the same swamp and. Uh, your commanding officer telling you, be careful, there's still a torso out there. Um, yeah. Uh, but as far as, uh, I mean, we went to Bosnia. I, 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 my tour was from 94 to 98, and um, we had Bosnia in 96. But uh, when we got to Bosnia, it was pretty much uh, down. All we did was Gator Squares in the, in the Black Sea and just go up. What's a Gator Square? Basically, you're, in the, you're, you're, in, you're on a ship. And you're doing squares, waiting to to uh, to get on land. Okay. And the ship is just doing a square until you know you do everything is taken care of on land, and uh, the um, whatever uh, recons you're doing reconnaissance or if you're doing the trap missions, if there's a down pilot or something, and we got to go out there and pick up that pilot, the 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 ship is just doing squares out in the sea, waiting for you to come back. And uh, that's what we did. We just uh, we were out there for six months. We did a bunch of gator squares. We did uh, trap missions. There was a few pilots that were down on uh, 
down into Bosnia, and then, then they would send us out there, pick up the pilots, and bring them back in. And we did a lot of patrols and a lot of humanitarian uh, actions. You know, but uh, but the first story I told you with the uh, helicopter uh, crashing and everything that was that was a uh, that was a training operation. That was a training operation before us going out there to the uh, Mediterranean Sea. And um, it was a uh, night, night uh, operation, and all these guys, all these pilots, I don't know if you guys know, but pilots fly with night vision goggles at night. It's like they have these things on, and all they can see is black and green. And um, that's how they're flying up there. So I guess uh, they didn't see each other, and helicopters crashed. There was bodies going everywhere. and oh, the helicopters collided in midair? Yes. And uh, the training op stopped, and all of a sudden we were... We were ordered to pick up bodies. There was bodies everywhere. And like I said, uh, for like weeks later, there was still torsos out there missing. Um, mm. But as far as war, as far as uh, in Bosnia stuff, I got out in 98. So I got out before all the heavy stuff hit, like in 2001 when the Twin Towers came down. Okay. And uh, I was already out of the military when that happened. Uh, and I feel for these guys that, was, that stayed in because they really got to see some heavy stuff. Yeah. I mean, every other day there was bombings. People were, you know... Um, but uh, as far as uh, my experience, I had a great time in and uh, got uh, got to train some great guys and I got some training from some great guys there. And like I said, it's a great experience. I would never change it for the world. Nice. Yep. Cool. So if we want to change this system that's so broken, you guys have all been out on the streets. You guys see the real crime. There is crime. You can all, you're all shaking your heads. You can all attest to this, right? There is crime. Sure. There are criminals. Are our, are our prisons too full with people that don't deserve to be there? I, I, would, I would answer that with a yes. And, and believe it or not, I believe that back when I was a cop and even I was a prosecutor. There's, we, have, we have a drug epidemic and, you know, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of people that are, Committing and I and I, I get appointed to cases where, where the only crime the person commits over and over and over again is possession of, of 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 cocaine. And so if they don't, if they can't afford bail, they're always going to spend. And then this is a Dade County function. How are they affording the, cocaine if they can't afford bail? Well, you know, I mean, well, the bail is a little bit more. The cocaine may be ten bucks, or or, or the rock may be ten bucks, and bail's five hundred, because that's what they got to come up with. Other than that, they got to come up with five thousand. So, you know, let's say they spend thirty-three days, and then they'll get convicted of a felony, get credit time served, um, which is a day county function because in Broward County, by the second or third time, he's probably going to prison. But in th this county started a program some years ago, the, the drug court program. I believe that was started here in Day County, and it's it's in a lot of other uh, cities and states now. It's a great program and it works, but you know there's a lot of people that come into the system, you know, and that's really those great programs work for first-time offenders, people, teenagers who are you know are starting, and people that, you know, there's some people whose addiction is so controlling over their life, oh yeah, that they can't uh, function, you know, and but addiction's it, not a crime. It's a it's a it's a a disease, but possession, it's a mental health disease. Yeah. So, so I, you know, to your 
earlier point, you know, it, I think in a lot of these cases, you know, I mean, there's 53%. This, these are statistics. I'm not making this up. Okay. I've seen them. We're going to check you on them. Yes. <laughs> they, they say over 50% of people in prison are in for nonviolent crimes. And so, you know, can we come up with a system where certain crimes are decriminalized? I mean, I, I see I see all the time uh, in Dade County there's 600 new misdemeanors every day. I mean, people go to jail for possession of a natural light because they were in the ordinance, uh, you know, non-alcohol zone of of city of Miami within the limits of the park or what have you. I mean, and that person gets a record. And once you take that person to jail three or four times, now as an employer you run, you get someone like George to run your 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 background check. And he's like, no, this guy's been arrested four times. So they, he doesn't get the job. So what is he going to do? So it's kind of like a system where it's set up to fail, mm. you know, on, on petty things that perhaps could be dealt with either with a monetary fine, some other form of less restrictive, you know, mm-hmm. punishment, you know. Right. You know, I mean, prison, I, I believe, and I think Detective Nyberg should be reserved for, for, for the worst of the worst, you know. Correct. People who prey on people, people who commit crimes. I'm, right. I'm not saying that property crimes aren't important. They are, and... And people who commit property crimes and burglarize homes, mm-hmm. you know, they definitely have the potential. How often do you guys u- used to see uh, the, the repeat offenders? Oh, tons of times. Yeah. I mean, when I was working homicide, not necessarily, but but yeah. but robbers, yeah. you know, robbers, burglars. Yeah. Uh, yeah, revolving door. Yeah, because there's sure. a saying that 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 jail doesn't you know reform uh, the criminal; it just makes a better criminal. I, I would agree. Yeah. I would agree. Yeah. I think from a law enforcement standpoint, you're talking about what changes can be made. Yeah. I think, I think unfortunately, the police departments have gotten away from the original Sir Robert Peel model of community policing. And I think that that was a brilliant model, and we've used it. We used it in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. It works. It's What was that method? And, and that method is you're, you have to train your people, and you have to have good supervision— you have to train your people that they're problem solvers. They're problem solvers and they're public servants. And they can't forget that. All right. And yeah, you 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 arrest people when they do wrong, but discretion, we talked about discretion. Let's use our heads. Are are, are we spinning our wheels? Are we taking a, a, a couple of cops off the road for four or five hours because of arrests that aren't gonna go anywhere in the system right. and not gonna accomplish anything? So I think the model has to be, let's operate in a way that is going to prevent things from happening. Let's operate in a way that the people in our community look to us with confidence, not with fear, not with mistrust. Um, And they should respect us. They should obey the law. But we should be there saying, hey, we're, we're here. This is our community, too. We're here to help you solve problems so that they're not problems for us. Right. We all live here together. Right. Yeah. And and I think we've gotten away from that, and I, and I think uh, immaturity is a problem on the job. I was going to say, do you think that a lot of the officers that are on the streets today are a little too sensitive, a little too oversensitive, a little too egotistical? I, I don't think. I, first of all, I think that a lot of departments hire at too young of an age. Okay. I think officers need to be a little older, have been around the block a few times, um, and and understand a little bit more about 
about the world before they're before they put a, on a badge. Yeah, and a gun. no. Look, a twenty-two-year-old doesn't see the world the same way a thirty-two-year-old sees it. <clears throat> I, I was twenty-one when I got on, and that was too young. I, I you know, I, I'd like to think I did a good job and treated people fairly, but that, that's not always the case with everybody. Yeah. And so when you put a young person in a in a very highly stressful situation, mm-hmm. they might panic. They might revert to whatever belief system they have that's going to help them survive, they may overreact. Mm. And we do see that, you know, and then, you know, this whole thing about less than lethal with tasers, um, it, it's not always the answer. You know, we, we did pretty well without tasers when I was on the job. We didn't have tasers. We had Billy, Billy clubs. We had nice Billy tasers. clubs, but, but you know what? I, honestly, speaking for myself and most of the cops I worked with, we did not want to go home with a dirty uniform. You know, if you could talk your way out of a situation or talk somebody down, that's what we did. Better. I don't want to get. I don't want to get in a fight with people. Did you ever have to draw your weapon during Ma- your years? Many times. Yeah. You know, I draw my weapon, and and you know, in many many situations, never shot anybody, but um, yeah, I've had to use it yeah. in that way. Because it would seem, it seems logical that maybe to shoot somebody with a taser before you shoot them with a bullet would make a little, you know a little more sense. A bullet is so like fast and and decisive and lethal. Yes, it's lethal. Um, and and I'm not saying tasers are bad. What I'm saying is, I think you you've got a couple Communica- generations communication of cops first. that are that are just relying on it too fast. I see. Yeah. I mean, if there's a if there's a you know a housewife who had too much to drink or she's maybe she's a little bit off mentally and she's giving the guy a hard time and refusing to get out of the car you're gonna tase her i mean we would if you have to grab somebody by the wrist and pull them out of the car pull them out of the car i mean let's do it let's go get a couple people get a backup and do it yeah and, so sometimes and it, you have to get physical sometimes you do um and i just think that i just think that a lot of discretion has been taken away and i think you have a lot of people you have a lot of supervisors on the job now who are are young and inexperienced, yeah, and and it, it's a bad cycle, you know. Yeah, I, I believe that also. I believe so. A lot of these police departments are hurrying up the uh, training process and just getting these people in without mm-hmm. the proper training, because we run into a lot of police officers on the street and they don't even know the law. They're 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 enforcing the law. They don't even know the law. And you know the the thing that that, that and to talk about Marines, Marines have for many years since they were created in Tun Tavern, um, have been in battle areas. Back, with in, pe- se- back in 1775. With yeah. people that wanted, November 10th, right? <laughs> with, with people that <laughs> wanted to kill, with people who want to kill them um, in foreign soil, and yet their track record of shooting unarmed people is a lot better than the police. So, there's something that we're doing wrong. I mean, when I I pulled my gun lots of times on people, on felony stops where I had, you know, my training was, you know, the car is stolen and there's multiple, or, you know, it's, it's one case the guy was a triple murder suspect. You got to pull out your gun because you don't want to find out that that guy is going to, you know, shoot at you. You already know he he he's already killed before. But I just see that people are too eager to get involved and to use guns and. And, and look at the Marines and, and our soldiers overseas. You do see from time to time where, where somebody's done a crime, where they've shot an unarmed person. For the most part, their, their training is based on being able to identify areas 
and also being able to communicate with people because they communicate with people who are living in in in, in the middle of the turmoil and they don't know if that person is a victim or a conspirator who's trying to kill them. And and so the, I've always been impressed with the military's ability, and especially the Marines, who are always on the ground, um, to be able to deal with interactions, with situations that are life-threatening, yet they're not quick to pull the trigger. Right. They're, you know, and they resolve things. So, so one, of the, one of our training, one of the things that they drill in our head is we can't fire until they, we get fired on. So a lot of these Marines are waiting for to hear that first gun shot so they could pull out their weapon and, and start firing. But like what he says, it's true. Uh, it's a, a lot of times we come into these neighborhoods and we have young kids coming at us for food or drinks or whatever. And a lot of times these are the little kids that are put a bomb in your in your backpack. So you have to be careful who you're talking to, who you're coming in contact with. And just because they're little kids or little women or whatever, you, have, you don't know who they are. And you have, yeah. to be, you have to keep your guard up at all times. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess it's a, it's a matter of training. Listen, training and education is clearly a huge thing in every level of this, not only for the people that are policing our communities, but also for the people that live in our communities. And uh, I don't think anybody disagrees with that, that we all want better uh, level of education for our for our neighbors because again we all live here together and we want to have a nice community I think so. I think the education uh, part of it is so is so vital um, I, I think that we do a poor job in this country of, of educating young people as to how their government works what their role in, as a citizen in the government is yeah. and how important it is and they, they learn a lot of other things but they're 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 woefully lacking I know because Civics. when I retired I, I taught high school for four years I oh, taught nice. criminal justice in high school and, and I was amazed at how little they knew about the Constitution, about how things work, yeah. and we needed to be better at that. Yeah, we need to get that reintroduced into school, and that's probably a whole nother show. But in, and, and before we wrap up, I just want to hear from, from you guys real quick um, what you think is a good tip for dealing with criminality or criminals in everyday life for the regular person. Like, what's a good way... For our listeners, if if they get confronted with a criminal situation, what's a good tip for them how to deal with that? Well, I mean, don't fight. Um, are you talking about like you know being confronted with an aggressive, violent sure. person? That's one. If you're being robbed, don't fight. Give it up. You know, there's no amount of money worth your life, um, and and just you know just minimize you know minimize the amount of time you have for that person. Just do whatever they say at that point. If you're if you're being held at gunpoint or something like that. Mm -hmm. You're, you know, other than that, um, you know, communication is is possible in some in some instances, but in most crimes happen very quickly. It's, right. it's, it happens in a matter of a couple of seconds and it's over. So, fighting against a, a violent criminal is not a good a good move. Right. Prevention, I think, is important too. I mean, yes. a lot of people contribute to their victimization by not knowing where they're at, uh, being attentive to their phone or or some other you know, uh, electronic device or the radio or whatever, you got to know where you're at. You know, there are certain neighborhoods that are worse than others. That's that's a reality. They're more crime-driven than others, you know. That mm -hmm. still doesn't mean you should be, uh, you know, I mean, you see the articles or you see the news where women will go to um, the gas station and leave their door unlocked while they walk in with their purse in the car. Well, you know, that's, that's people are following you. It, criminals 
they have nothing else to do but commit crimes. And, and they're going to commit crime on the, the majority of criminals. There are some that are very violent and they don't care. They, they want that confrontation. But the most part, most criminals are, are criminals of opportunities, you know, and they're opportunists. So they're going to wait to see who parks their car, doesn't lock their door, who leaves the person in the car. Uh, no one's going to risk breaking into a car where there's nothing visible if they need a quick, you know, if it's not in the middle of the night, um, it, they want to get away with whatever they have quickly. And if there's nothing in the car, they're not going to jump in there. But if you leave your purse unattended, so I think prevention is the most important thing. Awareness, Being, right? awareness, awareness of your yeah. surroundings. Surrounding. You got to know if you're in a bad neighborhood, the time of night. Right. You got to be looking around and, and focus on that and on your survival and on making sure you're not a victim or you're not giving someone the opportunity to victimize you. Right. You know, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, same thing. Just know your surrounding. Know your surrounding. Know know where you're at, what city you're at, and if you if you can run, run. <laughs> Go the other way. Now that's coming from a marine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, yeah, don't, don't sit there and think that you, you know, you're gonna be able to fight this guy off, and you know, it's not worth it. Like if the you can run, said, run. If you can run, yeah, run. That's true. Yeah, and that's like ancient uh, karate exactly. like, uh, information there. Uh, all the sensei say, you just avoid it. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing too the, with the road rage incidents, somebody honks at you. Don't pick a fight with them in the road because you know people people will kill you. Over a, over a traffic dispute, you know, yeah, it's crazy. you know, you want to get mad and you want to say stuff back, but you know what? Just ignore them. Who cares if they stick their middle finger at you? Who cares if they yell names at you? You yeah. know, put your and music I, loud. Yeah, and I think one of those things comes with maturity. Also, you, you get older, you yes, whatever. And I think also part of that that road rage comes from people being so pressured in today's world and being in such a hurry to get somewhere. And I'm running late, and I got to get there. And don't you know how important I am? Get that out of my way. And uh, and that causes this tension. And that's just perpetuated by sure. by things that are happening in our society. Because you know, look, we're all under a lot of pressure. And um, you know, maybe that'll change someday, and we'll be able to slow down and have more community and that's that's always our hope here at Philly in Miami that we can have more hope and more community uh, and on that and wrapping up our program we like to ask our guests a musical question so our question is who's on your playlist who are you playing in the car who do you got playing at home who are you listening to music wise this week oh wow uh to be honest with you, I, I listen to the radio. I don't have any particular person I listen to. I don't even watch TV. Song are you singing along with? Ah, uh, wow. Um, Pitbull. All right. Um, I haven't heard anything new from him in a minute, right. but go on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the only one that comes to mind right now. Like I said, I, I don't have time to listen to music or All watch right. TV. I don't do You're either. You're setting up surveillance. I'm, I'm either in the office, setting up, uh, setting up the, the office for the you know the investigators, or I'm on the field doing surveillance. All right. All right. I really don't have time to watch TV or listen. Music is the, is, is the thing that puts who's the savage beast. What you guys do? I, I have a million songs on my playlist, but this week... My 11-year-old son, um, and he loves Eminem. Um, he's he keeps playing on my uh, on my i well I guess my iTunes on my phone. He keeps playing the new song from uh, Eminem called "River" featuring Ed Sheeran. He likes that song a lot, and he plays Eminem. He likes uh, some of the the new modern hip hop guys, and I I t I tend to play the old 80s. 
uh, you know, freestyle music. I love, I have a collection of all the freestyle. You know, the old Johnny O, oh, Cynthia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, Stevie B. Uh, but we have a lot of, con- <laughs> me and my son, we have a, a connection with a lot of, you know, uh, songs that, that you know, he comes up and says, hey, Dad, I love this song. This is a great, the 90s were great. So he played, uh, the other day he was playing uh, Gangster's Paradise by Coolio. Nice. And he told me he loved that song. And so we have that connection where we, most of our music are in, and tune we like I like Eminem too. Yeah, nothing wrong with him. Uh, I'm gonna make people roll their eyes because I'm so stuck in the '70s, man. I'm I'm listening still to Allman Brothers and Eagles and Steely Dan and even Frank Zappa stuff from way back. Oh, but Frank Zappa stuff, wow, that's digging deep. It's going uh, way I back. Like that, but I I have a wide a wide variety of tastes. I mean, I might be a listening rock and to, roller at heart. I might be listening to ZZ Top one minute and Bach the next. I mean, it really depends on how I feel. It's beautiful. Music it, is a beautiful thing. Oh yeah, it joins us all together. For the Felony Miami team, I'm your host, Joe Stone. Don't forget to check us out online at FelonyMiami.com. Check us out on Spotify, uh, iTunes, all the RSS feeds. Give us a like, give us a listen, tell your friends about us. We'll see you next time. Well,